Good morning, good morning, Rabbi Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is sponsored and dedicated in celebration of the birth of their granddaughter, Glory Ray Cohen. Golda Karen Cohen to Batya and Benjamin and Benjamin Cohen to the proud, from the proud grandparents, Rabbi uh, Eli and uh, Esti Abadi and Glory and Mayor Cohen. Mazal Tov, Mabruk, Tiskelerot, Rob Nahat Kedushah, Tiskelerot, Toral Ben Toral, Hupal Maasim Tovim. As well as dedicated today uh, for the Rufuashlema of Yaakov Ben Polim Vishoshana um, uh, in loving memory, Li'ilui Nishmat, Marielle's grandma, Bolisa Bat Victoria, sponsored by Marielle Dweck. Do, dedicated as well in loving memory of Joseph, Joseph Zuzu Dana or Zuzu, Li'ilui Nishmat Yosef Ben Simcha, Alav Shalom, Yosef Ben Simcha, sponsored by his daughter Gila Sroor. Um, breakfast in the classes. Lastly, do- dedicated in celebration of the, educa- uh, of the engagement of Ariel Miriam Mayorian to Yaakov Hai Adir Talasazan, sponsored by Orly and Moez Mayorian. Did I pronounce all the names? Uh, I pronounced the names right? Did I get them? That? Yeah? Beautiful. Okay. My friends, <clears throat> we read about in the parasha how Moshe is approached, approaches Paro in different places. He approaches him in his palace, sitting on his throne. He approaches him uh, randomly with uh, warnings. He tells him what's going to come. Each time he shakes it up a little bit. And in the beginning it seems as if uh, it's haphazard, but eventually our rabbis explained to us that there's a pattern in where Moshe is going to see Paro. But one of the places that he goes to see him is God tells him to go to Paro in the morning. First thing in the morning, Go speak to him on the, at the edge of the river um, in the morning. And the question is, why does he need to wake him up early in the morning, Moshe Rabbeinu, to go speak to him in the morning? What's the exact, what's the hurry that he needs to go and have this conversation at that hour and at that place on the, on the, at the edge of the river? And Al-Khamim uh, tells us, Rashi quotes a Gemara that tells us about how Paro had a very specific uh, trick up his sleeve. He told the people that he was actually not a king or a ruler, but actually a deity, he was a god. And the way he illustrated that he was a god was by holding himself so he didn't go to the bathroom at any time during the day, so no one would ever see Paro go take a bathroom break. And that illustrated, if the guy doesn't go to the bathroom, obviously he's a god, okay? So God tells uh, 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 Moshe, Knowing the scenario, he knows that Paro is going early in the morning before even, remember that commercial uh, from Dunkin' Donuts? You had the guy go, time to make the donut. Remember that guy? Time to make the donuts. He gets up first thing in the morning. The streets are empty, right? But the only person on the streets at that hour was whom? Was Paro going to relieve himself in order to keep up appearances that he is a god and he doesn't need to use the bathroom. So God tells Moshe, go visit him there illustrating that you know exactly who he is, you know exactly his jig, the jig is up, and maybe he should just kind of admit that he's not the God that he uh, pretends to be, and to let the Jewish people out in the face of Borei Olam and his power. But my friends, you know, I, I kind of sometimes think of these scenarios in the Torah, not perspective, not from the perspective of the Pasuk, but from the perspective almost of what it would have been like in that moment. And I want to just imagine for a second this, this character, Paro, who is entrapped in many ways by his own illusions of grandeur. 
I want to imagine Paro, Hazit, on a day, in the middle of the day. It's only 12 noon, and he already can feel his bladders bursting, Hazit. The guy drank wine all morning. You know, he had a great party that day. He went to a Brit Milah, Mabarif, right, uh, Bar Mitzvah. He filled up, and there he is. He needs to go to the Tesh, but he can't go the whole day, because the only time he could go is in the morning when he goes to the river, when everyone's still sleeping. Think of the pain. You ever have to go to the bathroom really badly? Kills. Hadda's willing to sit through this day in, day out, his whole life. Better than that. Could you imagine, tell ask a gastroenterologist what that would have done to, uh, to the innards of this fellow, right? What Paro was going through, right? When, uh, when he was like embalming himself from the inside out, Hadda. Right? You think about the buildup of acid, the, uh, uh, the IBS that this fellow developed from this day in, day out for years. And we look at Paro, and uh, quite often, you know, we look at these, at the, uh, the anti-heroes of the Torah, and we, we cast them aside as wicked or foolish or simple-minded. But actually, what Paro was searching for was attempting to prop up is something that is prevalent in our world in this day and age more than ever before. A relentless search for perceived perfection, where we are desperate for people to think that we are perfect, where we will edit our photos before we upload them, where we will curate the life that we present to people online where our LinkedIn pages and our Facebook and our Instagram pages show only the person who never goes to the bathroom, who never makes a mistake, who never has, if I could borrow the expression, a wardrobe malfunction. My friends, Rabbi Wutai, these things are, they're constants in the world that we live with. You know, I'm struck by this in numerous places. One place is at the riverbank, but there's one other place. The other place is in the story of the Sephardea, of the uh, frogs. It tells us by the Sephardea that uh, Moshe goes, after these things are croaking for one week straight, they're in everything. They're in the ovens, they're in the bed, they're in the pajamas, they're everywhere. And the sound of the frogs is deafening. And never mind as well the fact that this slimy, amphibious uh, creature is, you know, jumping up your pants leg. You know what I mean? It's uncomfortable. The whole thing was very uncomfortable. Moshe comes to Paro. Paro's losing his mind. He calls him to the palace. He says, you know, please, you got to get rid of them. Moshe says, no problem. What, what, now? Should I get rid of him now? What does Paro say? Mahar. Please, tomorrow. Get rid of them tomorrow. And the rabbis ask, it's bothering you so much. Why tomorrow? So the Chachamim explained that Paro was trying to almost uh, entertain a possibility that maybe this was not God or the work of some deity that Moshe claimed to be working for. But rather Moshe understood, I always remember there's a book from Mark Twain, a Connecticut Yankee, in King Arthur's court. I don't know if anyone, anyone here read it. But there's one scene in the book where he predicts, right? He knows the guy's from the future. He goes back in time. He knows when there's going to be, they're about to kill him, but he knows when there's going to be an eclipse. 
So he starts mumbo-jumboing in front of everyone. And he says, if you guys don't let me free, I'm going to blot out the sun forever. He raises his hand and this eclipse comes. But he knows it's coming. Moshe Rabbeinu, Paro thought, maybe he knows when this makah is supposed to end. And that's why he's here now, offering me to get rid of it. Right? Maybe he should have said, look, there's nothing I can do. Whenever it goes, it goes. It's in the hands of God. Right? But if Moshe says, you want me to? No problem. I'll get rid of it, no problem. Oh, you know, maybe you know when it's leaving. Look at how much he's willing to suffer in order to be right. No, no, keep it here one more day. Because then I'll, I'll look like the one, I'll look like the one that's right. How often do we preface this image or this will, this ratzon, this deep desire to be right, to be the one that's in the right, to be the one that's on top, to have to maintain this perfect uh, image without cracks in our armor. How many marriages could have been saved if someone was not afraid to be, be vulnerable, was not afraid to say, I'm sorry. How many businesses could have, partnerships could have been salvaged if someone could, had the possibility in his vernacular, in his vocabulary of saying, I made a mistake. But we will put ourselves through pain, through discomfort, the discomfort of not going to the bathroom all day. The discomfort of saying this terrible thing that I wish would be over right now. No, no, leave it. I'm fine. I'm comfortable. I'm, I don't need any. No, this is good. I'm good like this. I don't mind. You know what? If I could, I would have it for a few more days. The ability that we have to do this is unbelievable. I'm fond of mentioning um, an amazing study. They talked, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the economists uh, that studied the remarkable uh, collapse of GE from being one of the strongest, most solid uh, contenders, if you will, in the, in the market. Uh, a, a monster company that operated for, for many decades spectacularly implodes in a matter of, I think it was 16 months. It went from, again, blue chip stock, you know you're safe, to, to nothing. And they asked, what was it? They tried to figure it out. What was it um, which, uh, which literally signed the death warrant of this once great company? There's even a book written by the original CEO who was a legend. Uh, was it Jack Walsh, right? And um, he had great, the you know, great ideas. And, and I want you to listen to his theory. He wrote that if there's any product which you are not either the number one or the number two, get out of making that product. If you're number three, chalas, cut the line. He left, someone else took over. And the end of the study, I think it was done by Harvard Business School. The end of the study, I remember the terminology they used, they actually printed it in the newspaper. The terminology was, what was the, the death knell for GE? Was something called success theater. Where in shareholder meetings or in press releases, everything was spun to be able to make it look like a success. So as an example, if the company failed at whatever it failed at, it had to you know, discontinue a certain product. They spun it as if they were focusing on something else, but actually they, you know, they did really well with it. There was this inability within the company for anyone to admit that there was any problems, that there was any faults. So therefore, what was everything was always fine, everything was great, everything was amazing. 
Because they could not admit, yes, we're number three, and because of our failure, we're cutting the product line, like the previous leadership had taught them to do. Because they were so busy spinning this yarn of success, they actually had no time, no ability to focus on the faults and to rectify them. My friends, I look at this man, at this paro, and like we said yesterday, I see so much of him in the world that we live in, the world that we live in today. You know, I remember uh, there was a, uh, a meeting between two business partners in London that, uh, that um, were fighting over a breakup of a company. And they came to see me and kind of like a rabbinic arbitration. I don't know why people think sometimes that rabbis uh, have the ability to do things that are outside of their, outside of their pay, their pay their, uh, above their pay grade, like they say, you know. Because they're free, that's probably the reason, right? <laughs> right? The famous line goes, there's no such thing as part-time rabbi. There's only such a thing as a rabbi with a part-time salary. <laughs> right? It's free and you're available at all times, it's not nine to five. But sometimes, you know, they assume that you're a psychiatrist and a psychologist and a, you know, and a as expert in business and you have all the, you know, an educational, uh, you know, masters in education. You know everything about everything. So either way, this, this, this two guys came to me and they were breaking up the company. And, and, and um, the breakup of the company was going to cause that both of them should lose a tremendous amount of money. Because literally in the pulling apart of resources, in, however they sliced it, both of them were going to lose terribly. So I said to them, look, you know, I, I'm happy to help you do this. But before we do this, like, look at how much you're going to lose. Is this something you really want to go through with? Both, neither one of you is coming out a winner here. And you know what it boiled down to? This is amazing. Two grown men with grown children. Both did very well in their life. This was a, a, a fight between the two people that had nothing to do with anybody else. It wasn't playing out even in a public stage. Both of them refused to work with one another because they each could not admit that the other person's mistakes had, caught, had cost them some profits in the last year. They were very profitable. They just hadn't made as much as they expected to make. And now they're willing to lose tremendous amounts, even more than the loss than they would have had the year before. The loss between the projected revenue and the revenue they made. Because both of them were not willing to say to the other person, I made a mistake, and if I would have done this, no, no, it was your fault, it was your fault. I'm sitting there watching this, and I said to them, I'm really sorry, I know that you guys came to me for arbitration, but there's no possible way that I can do this arbitration. They said, why Rabbi? But we picked you, and you said you would do it. I said, I did say I would do it. I said, but there's a halakha in the Gemara that there are certain people that actually are patur from mitzvot. Certain people are patur from mitzvot. There are certain people that are unable to sign a document. Certain people that can't make a kinyan. They can't give divorce papers. I said, and one of those people is a shoteh. Someone who's mentally unstable. A fool, an idiot, a crazy person. And one of the categories, and they're looking at me very offended. By the way, I didn't mind that they should both be together offended about me, but together, then offended at each other. But I said to them, I said, I don't mean to cast aspersions on your IQ, but the Gemara, one of the different definitions of a shote is a person who takes things that are valuable and he throws them out. 
And what does he take? What does he bring in? The guy takes clumps of dirt and earth and stones and he brings them into the house. And all the good things of his house, his money, his furniture, that he throws in the street. That's a shoteh. I was throwing away money and collecting, uh, you know, uh, moldy waffles. I don't know why I came up with that idea. But whatever the case is, that's, that's a shoteh. I said, you two are shotim. So even if I gave you some, so any sort of advice, you wouldn't be able to implement it. Because you took something which is valuable and you threw it away. And what are you holding on to? Something which is worthless, which, which has no value. You're holding on to past perceived uh, you know, offenses, uh, to, a, to, to a, a perceived slight in pride where no one, there's no one else, there's no one else here. <clears throat> there's an amazing story that they share actually about the Beatles. That there was a fight between a few of the different uh, the singers. And one of them, I don't know which one, I think it was John Lennon. And, the, and they were fighting, the two of the, him and one of the other Beatles, they were fighting. They were arguing, they were getting very upset. And then he basically looked at, uh, John Lennon looked at the other guy and he picked up his glasses and he looks him in the eye and he says, it's only me. Like you're arguing about the, the record deal and this and about that and like as if we're, it's only me. We're the four boys from Liverpool. We're four best friends that came together to make some music that went on this wild ride and became the most popular band in the history of music. But it's, but it's only me. How many times does a husband need to be reminded that the person opposite him is not playing chess with him? It's his wife. What's the pound of flesh that you have to have from her that will make you happy before you can, can reconcile, can put things back together? You know, children and parents fighting over things. You gave this one more, you pay that one more attention. Just what would happen if we could lift the glasses up, look at each other in the eyes and just say, it's only me. It's just me. There's nobody else here. I imagine on some level, that is what Yosef HaSadiq said to the brothers. Lifted up his glasses. Ani Yosef. Ultimately, the Gemara says, Oi lanu miyom adin, oi lanu miyom Woe is to us from the day of judgment. Woe is to us from the day of rebuke. Because when Yosef said, Ani Sadi, Ani Yosef, the brothers couldn't say anything. In the end of, the, end of time, so to speak, God Himself is going to say to all of us, Ani Amonai, what will we say then? And it struck me as well that this image that we have of the day of judgment being one of lightning and thunder and God with a massive kind of spear. That's Greek mythology. It's going to be God looking at us in the eyes and saying, Ani Hashem, when you hurt me, when you ignored me, when you disobeyed all of my commandments after everything I did for you, I wasn't a distant God in the sky. I was, I was the power, the light that traveled with you. I was the creativity in your, in your business, in your marriage, in your life. I was the electricity in your veins when you saw something beautiful. It's just me. If we could ever perhaps uh, eliminate us, ourselves or remove ourselves from the Paro syndrome, the moment of I am a God and I cannot have any mistakes. I don't go to the bathroom. 
I'm willing to suffer. How much pain would we save ourselves from? So perhaps the message over here, the overarching message, is for a person to start off their day and say, I am imperfect, but I'll do my best with what I've got. We start off, we say, this idea that God, I start my day without you, I would be a lifeless lump of flesh. God, but for you, I would not even be conscious. It is that humility, if you start the day properly that way, that allows us to go into things and not have the highest, you know, infallible opinion of ourselves. And once we have that, actually, the ironic thing is, we can get closer and closer and closer to perfection. The more you can see your imperfections, the closer to perfect you become. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen.